In 2003, the Society for Military History uh, presented its Samuel Elliott Morrison Prize for Lifetime Achievement to our next speaker, Edward Dre. Uh, Dre is, in many ways, a legend in the area of U.S. military history. He was formerly chief of the Research and Analysis Division in the U.S. Army Center for Military History. Prior to that, he taught at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and at the U.S. Army College and also worked for the U.S. Army Center for Military History right here in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's the author of a, uh, uh, two books that stand out. The first one, I must confess, is one that I have myself relied heavily upon in my biography of Douglas MacArthur, which is MacArthur's Ultra, Code-Breaking and the War Against Japan, 1942 to 1945, a book which is, believe me, that title just scratches the surface of what you can find in that book in terms of a discussion uh, of the war in the, in the Southwest Pacific area. It is, I think, uh, an unparalleled guide to what takes place, not just in terms of military intelligence, but also the overall course and direction and dynamics of that campaign. And as I like to say, when it comes but that uh, uh, what Edward Dre doesn't know about U.S. intelligence gathering in the Pacific Theater World War II isn't knowledge. The second book, which is the one uh, which serves as a springboard for our purposes, is his book on Japan's Imperial Army, its rise and fall, 1853 to 1945, which I think more than uh, almost any other book that you can find in the field really positions the his Japanese military history uh, and the history of the Japanese army in a context that really helps to frame up the larger perspective of how Japan built the army, what that army looked like, way it, way it functioned as an organization, and its outlook on strategy. And that's going to be the theme for our paper for today. Uh, on And have that I've asked uh, uh, Dr. Dre to talk about um, Japan's military and diplomatic strategy between the two wars. And so it's my honor and privilege to present Dr. Edward Dre. Um, first, I would like to thank the Hudson Institute for inviting me and for convening this panel. And secondly, I'd like to thank you, the members of the audience, for participating with the panel and for being here. Uh, my presentation is a revised and expanded version of an earlier talk about Japan's national military strategy and alliance politics during the interval between the world wars of the 20th century. Japan's respective military services prepared imperial defense policy independently of each other and without civilian oversight or review. The Imperial Army's continental strategy measured itself against Imperial Russia, or later the Soviet Union, the northern threat. The Imperial Navy's maritime strategy measured itself against the United States, the southern threat. This contradiction plagued military strategy formulation throughout the interwar era. With that brief background, in mid-1918, Japanese military authorities revised imperial defense policy to respond to the World War I cataclysm. Imperial Russia was no more replaced by a revolutionary regime with uncertain prospects. The United States was engaged in a massive naval expansion program that Japan could not hope to match. The revised defense policy posited a future war against a tripartite coalition, the United States, the Soviet Union, and China. The fundamental premise was that Japan would fight a short war highlighted by decisive battles on land and at sea that would quickly end any conflict. The Army's major initiative would seize Siberia as far west as Lake Baikal. 
Smaller forces would capture U.S. naval bases in the Philippines. The Navy would eliminate the American naval forces in Asian waters and destroy the U.S. battle fleet in a decisive main force surface engagement. This required three fleets, one to destroy the U.S. Navy in Asian waters, another to convoy Army forces to the Philippines, and a third, the main fleet, for the decisive battle. The problem was Japan had just two fleets, and the decision to build a third pitted Japan in a naval arms race against the United States. As we've heard other speakers today, the immediate post-World War I era witnessed the Versailles Conference dealing not especially well with the collapse of four wartime empires, plus the demands of China for suzerainty and Japan for racial equality. In exchange for Japan dropping its equality claims, the major Western powers recognized Japan's rights in China and Tokyo's mandate over Germany's former Pacific Island holdings. The post-war mood of anti-militarism, anti-nationalism, and anti-great power alliances encouraged hopes for international disarmament and collective peaceful solutions to international issues. But in Northeast Asia, Japan faced resurgent Chinese nationalism, renewed commercial competition from Great Britain and the United States for the China market, and a civil war in Siberia, the last occasioning Japan's Siberian expedition that lasted into 1922. In this new international arena, the cornerstone Anglo-Japanese alliance, admittedly of declining importance for both nations during the past decade, was not renewed in 1921 and there's no evidence that the Imperial Japanese Army or the Imperial Japanese Navy resisted the loss of this ally. Fierce commercial rivalry between Japan and Britain in China and differences over naval expansion were more evident now than cooperation between the former allies. Moreover, the League of Nations, which Japan joined, presaged a new international system relying on multinational treaty agreements, not bilateral alliances. It was in these circumstances that the Washington Naval Conference convened in 1921. Japan could not compete with the United States in a renewed naval arms race. The Navy's efforts to create a third fleet had already diverted one-third of the entire 1921 national budget to the Navy, and the post-war depression left the cabinet in a retrenchment mode. Although Japan was willing to accept naval limitations, Navy admirals demanded supremacy over a U.S. main fleet in Japanese home waters. To oversimplify the negotiations, a force attacking Japan needed a two-to-one superiority. In other words, the attacker had to have twice the strength of the defender. A 10 to 6 ratio in capital ships would thus limit any U.S. Navy offensive against Japan's home islands. Anti-treaty Japanese admirals, based on earlier staff studies, insisted that the force level needed to win a naval war with the United States required a 10 to 7 ratio. The 10 to 6 one cut the margin of victory too fine. The ultimately agreed upon 10 to 6 ratio applied only to capital ships. The conference did not establish limits for auxiliary vessels, particularly heavy cruisers. Furthermore, Japanese negotiators gained approval for a non-fortification clause that restricted the Pacific powers from building or improving fortifications or naval bases on any of their island possessions, except for Singapore, Hawaii, and Japan's home islands. That left the Americans without access to secure advanced bases, and Japan's admirals conjectured that if their auxiliary vessels could reduce an approaching U.S. battle fleet by 10%, then Japan's capital ships 
could annihilate the weakened survivors. Shipbuilding shifted from capital ships to auxiliary vessels, particularly heavy cruisers, in a new naval arms race. Meanwhile, the Japanese army, with less than one-fifth of the national budget, struggled with the implications of forced modernization in depressed economic times. Personnel reductions paid for modern weapons and equipment. But army opponents of the 1922 reforms claimed that a large standing army was essential to win the first battle of the next war, which, after all, was the key to victory in any short war scenario. Furthermore, the army could identify no likely opponent. The nascent USSR, the threat from the north, was weak and in turmoil, and China was falling into warlordism. Because the army lacked a viable opponent, the revised 1923 imperial defense policy identified the United States as a common opponent for both services, the only time that this happened in the history of the document. Besides being a default opponent, Japan had legitimate grievances. Washington had criticized Japan's Siberian intervention, insisted on greater commercial rights in Manchuria, imposed naval limitations, and legislated exclusionary immigration policies. The Navy, adapting to its new attrition tactics, shifted the anticipated site of the decisive battle eastward from Japanese home waters to somewhere between the Ryukyus and the Bonins, where battleship divisions would slug it out for naval supremacy in the Western Pacific. To ensure a short, decisive naval war, Japan also had to eliminate U.S. bases on Guam and in the Philippines at the opening of the conflict. The 10-6 ratio, however, rendered Japan unable to project its naval offensive power that far into the Western Pacific. Navy hawks again demanded a 10-7 ratio. As for the Army, Imperial Defense Policy relegated it to capturing Guam or the Philippines, at most a three or four division operation. Faced with a depressed economy, declining budgets, and the lack of a major opponent, in 1925 the Army inactivated four divisions to pay for modernization. <coughs> Within just a few years, however, the military situation in Northeast Asia had dramatically shifted. A stronger Soviet Union was strengthening its military forces in Siberia, while in China, the nationalist unification campaign was moving steadily northward toward Japanese spheres of influence. Two Japanese military interventions in China in 1927 and 1928, respectively, and a resurgent Soviet military presence in Siberia put pressure on the cabinet to get, as we'd say today, boots on the ground to protect Japan's interests in China and Manchuria against Irredentist Chinese nationalism, Soviet communism, and American meddling and interference. The Army General Staff now had two threats on the Asian continent that justified larger forces. Toward the end of the 1920s, the cruiser race fostered an international dispute about further naval arms limitations. The 1930 London Naval Conference convened to discuss naval disarmament. Although at present ahead in heavy cruisers, Tokyo feared that the 1929 U.S. program for cruiser construction would quickly overtake their efforts. The Imperial Navy split over its response. A pro-treaty faction regarded limits as a way to avoid a protracted war with the United States which Japan could never win. This fundamentally defensive strategy relied on attrition tactics to compensate for an inferior main fleet. It argued that within treaty limitations, the Navy could still control the sea lanes north of the Taiwan Straits by making optimum use of land bases, improved technology, and innovative use of auxiliary vessels, now including aircraft carriers and submarines. A fleet faction, championed by Admiral Suetsugu Nobumasa, the hawkish vice chief of naval operations, foresaw an inevitable clash of cultures between the values of Japan 
and those of the United States. He insisted on a larger fleet because the 10-7 ratio in offensive striking power underpinned the Navy's short war strategy. The treaty faction dismissed a short war scenario because the then fashionable concept of total war dictated attritional warfare, with Japan adopting the strategic defensive to protect the home islands. The London Conference's agreed to 10-6 ratio for heavy cruisers became a bitter pill for the Naval General Staff because it forced the Navy to halt further construction of heavy cruisers. In the immediate aftermath of the London negotiations, the Japanese press and fleet faction members condemned the agreement as a betrayal of national security because it violated the principle of supreme command vested solely in the military. Ineffective and corrupt politicians had failed to rescue Japan from its deep economic depression and appeared more concerned about petty self-interests than the national polity. The latest controversy weakened the ruling political party and party rule in general in Japan. The Naval General Staff pressured a new cabinet to withdraw from the treaty. Amidst growing economic hardship and social unrest, the Army offered its solution. Overseas expansion into the wide open spaces of Manchuria. The September 1931 Manchurian incident, a conspiracy engineered by mid-level Japanese army officers, soon led to the takeover of China's three northeast provinces and the creation of a new nation of Manchukuo. Despite or because of international criticism by Western powers, Japanese public opinion enthusiastically supported the Army's unilateral action as a much-needed corrective for weak-kneed diplomats, corrupt politicians, and ineffective bureaucrats. Soon after the incident, the catchphrase, Manchuria, Japan's lifeline, entered the popular lexicon. It was shorthand to mean that with Manchuria's natural resources, Japan was no longer helpless against Western bullying. Certain Japanese also viewed themselves as Asia's champion against Anglo-Saxon domination. Colonel Ishiwara Kanji, the Army's mastermind of the 1931 Manchurian incident, wrote and lectured on the final decisive war between Japan, champion of Asia, and the United States, the paladin of the West, which he expected to erupt around 1950. When the League of Nations formally condemned Japan's use of military force in Manchuria in early 1933, Japanese representatives walked out of the League in protest. Matsuoka Yosuke, Tokyo's flamboyant League representative, led the dramatic departure captured forever on film. But Matsuoka never intended to leave the League or to resort to crisis diplomacy. He had advised Tokyo that while small nations were sympathetic toward China, the big powers did not want to alienate Japan. He advised conciliation. The foreign minister, playing to domestic opinion, opted for confrontation. Even if the country is turned into scorched earth, he announced in the Diet, it will not shake our recognition of Manchukuo. Matsuoka deliberately delayed his return to Japan by three months because he feared popular reaction against his walkout. When crowds of flag-waving Japanese greeted his train at Tokyo Station, he questioned their sanity. In truth, the National Unity Cabinet's fixation over recognition of Manchuria, or Manchukuo, drove policy. Matsuoka's walkout from the League the status of Manchukuo, further Japanese army meddling in North China, and the possibility of another naval arms race left Japan increasingly adrift in the international arena. Manchukuo was also essential for Colonel Ishiwara's preparations for the final war. The Japanese army carved out buffer zones in North China to shield Manchukuo, and along Manchukuo's borders carefully monitored the Soviet Red Army's steady deployments expected to peak in 1936. 
This crisis of 36 mentality infected the fleet faction, which insisted on a larger navy now to control the South China Sea. They proposed to neutralize American bases in the Philippines by extending the decisive fleet engagement east of the Philippines. Facing the non-treaty era, even the moderate treaty faction backed a naval buildup, fearing that otherwise the Army would get too large of a budget share. While the Navy required a buildup against the Americans, the Soviets' continuing reinforcement of the Soviet Far East mandated an Army buildup. In these circumstances, Ishiwata met with his Navy counterpart to discuss the requirements for a future war, whether it would be a short war or a protracted one, who the likely opponents would be, and the direction of Japan's strategic axis, north or south. Army strategists envisaged a protracted ground war on the Northeast Asian continent that necessitated immediate preparations. Initial operations would quickly take out Soviet air power in eastern Siberia, enabling ground forces to destroy Soviet units east of Lake Baikal. In this scenario, the Navy's marginal role would be to assist the Army in seizing Vladivostok. The Navy identified the United States as a major threat and envisioned a short, decisive naval campaign. The Army's marginal role would be to seize the Philippines. A triad of battleships, carriers, and land-based naval aircraft would weaken and ultimately destroy the approaching U.S. battle fleet in waters east of Luzon, Philippines. The emphasis was on battleships and big gun proponents cheered when the keels of the super battleships Yamato and Musashi were laid in 1937. Put differently, the Army would advance north against the Soviet Union and defend the south. The Navy would defend the north and advance south against the United States. Both services were intent not only on expanding force structure, but also on implementing enormously expensive programs to modernize weapons and equipment. The 1936 version of imperial defense policy was, to, was supposed to resolve these contradictory military strategies. Instead, the service-oriented continental and maritime strategies emerged intact. The June 1936 revision of imperial defense policy had something for everyone. It stated that the objective was a short war, but allowed the conflict might become protracted. The main enemies were the United States and the Soviet Union, but they might also include China and Great Britain as well. Despite acknowledging the possibility of fighting against a coalition, the respective services continued to gauge their requirements against their two primary and different opponents, in other words, defining strategy in terms of operational planning. A few weeks later, the Army issued its national military policy to modernize the force in order to drive Western influence from Asia. The defeat of the Soviet Union was the first step. This became the basis for an expensive five-year rearmament program to overhaul the Army and modernize its weaponry and equipment for a war with the Soviets, then expected to occur in 1942. It called for a peacetime establishment of 27 divisions, expandable to 41 during wartime mobilization, and 142 air squadrons, an increase of 88 squadrons over the current force. The same day, the Five Ministers Conference endorsed the Navy's southward advance strategy, in effect justifying a massive naval rearmament program to be completed in early 1942, when the fleet would be organized around 12 battleships, 10 aircraft carriers, and 28 heavy cruisers. In other words, by mid-1942, the Japanese Navy would reach its peak strength relative to the United States Navy, and it would be downhill after that. How is such an expensive rearmament program possible for a relatively poor agrarian society? Even the Japanese emperor asked that question. As late as 1930, half of Japanese lived in rural areas, 
dependent on agriculture for a livelihood, and dramatic population growth since 1910 had outstripped food supply. Light industry dominated manufacturing, with cotton and silk the leading exports, until the collapse of the silk market in the late 1920s. Japan, though, had recovered quicker from the World Depression by devaluing its currency in 1931, thus making exports cheaper, and the finance ministry's deficit spending policies that underwrote major construction projects in Japan and in Korea. Japan's colonies of Korea and Taiwan were no longer regarded as a source of local profits and stability. Instead, Tokyo would mobilize their human and material resources to support Japan's expanding empire. In 1931, the Governor General of Korea instituted new policies to provide raw materials for Japanese industry and encourage Japanese investment and control of strategic, military, uh, of strategic materials on the peninsula. Similarly, on Taiwan, in 1936, Tokyo established the Taiwan Development Company to exploit the island's agricultural output. The state and military likewise encouraged industrial development in Manchukuo to support Japanese heavy industry. The so-called new zaibatsu, or <coughs> financial conglomerates, for lack of a better term, <coughs> excuse me, worked with the army to create special industrial zones to manufacture steel, cement, bricks, electric power, and so forth. The Japanese government also adopted central planning in order to, to encourage cartels to streamline controls of industry. In 1937, the army and the bureaucracy produced five-year plans identifying specific strategic industries for growth. So Ishiwara may have been a visionary, but this hard-headed approach to preparations for the outbreak of war in 1942 was no pipe dream. In August of 1936, the foreign ministry approved Fundamentals of National Policy, a diplomacy designed to neutralize the Soviet Union and underwrite a peaceful advance into Asia's southern regions. It simultaneously would strengthen the army in Manchukuo to win the first battle of the next war and expand the navy to control the Western Pacific, thereby endorsing both massive military buildups. It also gave the green light for the anti-Comintern pact negotiations with Germany. That October, the cabinet approved the anti-Comintern pact concluded between Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. Tokyo's original intent was to create a broad network of nations to contain the Soviet Union while freeing Japan from its diplomatic isolation. Japanese diplomats sought to enlist British, Dutch, and Italian participation and also discuss the encirclement idea with Polish diplomats, among others. When nothing came of these overtures, the foreign minister questioned the wisdom of a bilateral pact with Germany. But a pact did appeal to army leaders who anticipated the benefits of German neutrality in any Japanese-Soviet confrontation. The Navy offered no objections. The foreign ministry highlighted an agreement that deprived China of German military assistance. In the larger context, the pact backfired because it identified Japan with Nazi Germany, increasing Tokyo's estrangement from the other major Western powers, especially the United States. The outbreak of the undeclared Sino-Japanese War in July 1937 threw the, threw the previous year's strategic and diplomatic compromises into disarray. The Army's rampage through China turned world opinion against Japan, leaving the nation even more isolated. As the war expanded, the Army occupied Guangzhou in South China in October 1938. The Navy promptly pressured the government for approval to seize Hainan Island, ostensibly to close the southern end of the China blockade, but actually to control the South China Sea, neutralize the Philippines, and ultimately as a base to project naval power beyond the Philippines and into the Western Pacific. In September 1939, Europe went to war. 
and two months later, the Japanese Naval General Staff requested permission to start the first stage of fleet mobilization, aimed at doubling its personnel by late 1941. By this time, the Army had 1.2 million men under arms, the majority deployed in Manchukuo or on the fighting fronts in China. Army leaders still remained committed to a war against the Soviets, regardless of their sobering defeat by the Red Army at Nomonhon, Kalkan Gaul, in the summer of 1939, which was accompanied by erstwhile ally Germany's duplicitous signing of a non-aggression pact with the Soviets in the midst of the Nomonhan battles. Army leaders also wanted to end the war in China, but not at any price. In late March 1940, strategists decided that if military force could not settle the China incident during 1940, then the following year Tokyo would commence large-scale troop withdrawals from China. Within two years, Japan would consolidate forces in a large triangular area bordered by Shanghai, stretching into North China and encompassing Manchukuo. The withdrawal of approximately 350,000 Japanese troops would offset the costs of the revised 1936 arms replenishment plan. The amended 1940 program, based on the escalated manpower requirements for China and the tactical and operational lessons of the Nomonhan campaign, would field a wartime force now of 65 divisions, up from 41, and 160 air squadrons, up from 142, and do this by 1944. <clears throat> the Nazi victories in France and the Low Countries during May and June 1940 seemingly gave Japan a once-in-a-lifetime chance to isolate China from Western military aid running through Burma and French Indochina. The European colonies in Asia were also isolated and ripe for the picking, like rice cakes off the shelf. The catchphrase, don't miss the bus, summed up the urgency to take advantage of the opportunity. Imperial General Headquarters Confidential Diary recorded the enthusiasm for a southern advance that marked a 180-degree turn in the Army's strategic thinking. In late July, Prime Minister Konoye Fumemaro announced the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere to create a new order in East Asia to end American and British domination of the region. Washington equated it to the Nazis' new order, with all of the odious implications that carried. The next day, an imperial headquarters liaison conference agreed to settle the China incident quickly, and if the opportunity presented itself, simultaneously to resolve issues in the southern regions. This strategy hinged on preventing outside aid from reaching the Chongqing government, which the Japanese believed in turn would cause the China's collapse. Occupying air and military bases in French Indochina would deter the British from further assistance and prevent United States interference. It would also provide operating bases to prepare for a southern advance. Both services sought to exploit the opportunities presented by the Nazi triumphs in Europe to create a self-sufficient zone in Asia, the so-called southern region. The army was willing to use force to occupy the region and then take its resources to prepare for war against either the United States or the Soviet Union. The Navy, however, favored peaceful expansion likely the result of war games played against the United States in mid-May that ended with the Navy unable to protect the sea lanes leading back to Japan. Navy Minister Admiral Yoshida Zengo concluded that it was pointless to attack the Netherlands East Indies because its resources could not be transported safely intact to Japan. Still, if necessary, the fleet was prepared to use force and on 20 June 1940, the Naval General Staff began detailed contingency planning for a southern advance. In August 1940, <coughs> excuse me, the Army General Staff began drafting plans for a Malaya operation as part of an overall campaign that also included the Philippines <coughs> and the Netherlands East Indies. 
<coughs> Sorry. Meanwhile, the British, under German air bombardment and threat of invasion, gave in to Japanese pressure and closed the Burma Road in July 1940. Franco-Japanese discussions over basing rights in French Indochina went nowhere, and on the 23rd of July, Japanese troops occupied northern Indochina. The Army's thinking then had shifted from ending the China War quickly in order to move south to moving south in order to end the China War quickly. No one had seriously considered Western reaction. The United States promptly embargoed scrap metal shipments to Japan. In October, the British reopened the Burma Road. Once again, Japanese aggression produced unanticipated reactions. Adding to Tokyo's isolation, four days after Japanese troops entered French Indochina, Foreign Minister Matsuoka signed the Tripartite Pact in Berlin. Prime Minister Konoye's original concept was to prevent the United States from entering a war against Japan while maintaining neutral relations with the Soviet Union, in effect defending the North and advancing South. Matsuoka hoped to enlist the Soviets in a four-power commercial pact, Italy, Germany, Japan, and the Soviets. Uh, but by this time, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union's relations had worsened, making this impossible. Within the Japanese Navy, political maneuvering promoted a new Navy minister sympathetic to the pact, swayed further by promises of larger budgets, as well as assurances that it contained no automatic participation clause in case of a German-American war. The tripartite pact was clearly aimed at the United States. Berlin's purpose was to use the threat of a two-front ocean war to prevent the United States from entering the war against Germany. Matsuoka believed that signing the pact would display Japan's determined resolution, isolate the United States, and deter Washington from war. When asked about the possibility of American economic retaliation, Matsuoka, who prided himself on his American expertise, acknowledged that Japanese-American relations were very bad, yet argued that they could not be improved by caving in to U.S. demands. Contrary to Matsuoka's explanation to the emperor that the pact would not upset the American people because half of them were of German ancestry, it provoked the opposite reaction, which he never expected. The pact further antagonized the United States, which after all, supplied the bulk of the Japanese Navy's strategic materials, and it tied Japan to allies thousands of miles away with resource needs of their own. The fall of 1940 found Japan more isolated internationally. Germany had failed to defeat Great Britain, and Tokyo's year-long overture, peace overture to the Chongqing government had failed, leaving the China War no closer to solution. Internally, the Army remained divided over future strategy. The General Staff's Operations Division sought simultaneous preparations for war north or south. The War Ministry's Military Affairs Bureau wanted to move south. On 15 October 1940, the Navy ordered second stage mobilization to begin, with full mobilization to be completed by mid-November 1941. Furthermore, Japanese strategists determined in late 1940 that the Japanese fleet probably could not await an approaching American fleet. With uncertainty about the Americans risking a crossing through the mandates, the decisive, the decisive battle would be fought far into the Western Pacific, somewhere in the vicinity of the Marianas or the Carolines. As the services modified strategic and operational plans, Konoye and Matsuoka in early 1941 considered adding the Soviet Union to the tripartite pact. Soviet participation would end Moscow's military assistance to China, providing Japan with leverage to end that war, and it would also strengthen Tokyo's hand against the United States and Great Britain. The Germans were not interested. Instead, Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop railed to Matsuoka that if the USSR is not smashed, the root of all evil will not be removed from Europe. 
he harangued Matsuoka to immediately attack Singapore. While Matsuoka was in Berlin, Germany invaded the Balkans. He thought that this would force the Soviet Union to stabilize its relations with Japan to avoid an Eastern threat so that Moscow might coordinate its energies in the West against Germany. Accordingly, Matsuoka next traveled to Moscow, where a last-minute unexpected intervention by Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin led to the signing of a neutrality pact on 13 April. Matsuoka believed that securing Japan's northern flank improved its negotiating position with the United States. But Washington, of course, regarded it as yet another example of Japan's preparations to move in Southeast Asia. The Japanese army, especially the general staff, doubted that the pact protected Japan's northern flank and judged that it neither contributed to a military solution in Southeast Asia nor avoided war with the United States. At most, it bought time for the army to prepare for Japan's impending showdown with the Soviet Union. Two months later, Germany invaded the Soviet Union, throwing Japan's military strategy and diplomacy into consternation. The army was divided. The operations division demanded an immediate strike north, but others took a wait-and-see attitude, willing to attack only if the USSR was in danger of imminent collapse. Preparations went forward to move north or south. A secret and massive mobilization ultimately marshaled more than 750,000 Japanese troops in Manchukuo, poised to invade the Soviet Union. <clears throat> the Navy simultaneously saw a chance to move south. A 2 July 1941 Imperial Conference endorsed the advance south even at the risk of war with the United States and Great Britain, but with the caveat that favorable conditions might allow for an advance north. Two weeks later, Imperial General Headquarters ordered 25th Army in South China to occupy southern Indochina. Japanese forces moved in on the 23rd of July, and to the surprise of Japanese military planners who had predicted the occupation would not provoke a drastic American reaction, the United States promptly froze Japanese assets and shortly after embargoed the export of oil to Japan. On the northern front, by late July, the expected large withdrawals of Soviet units from the Far East had not materialized. And, Constrained by a tight operational timetable for an attack on the Soviet Union, on 9 August, the Army shifted its operational planning to a southern advance. Plans were to be completed by October 1941, one month before the anticipated opening of hostilities. A five-day joint planning session opened on 20 September. The Army wanted to attack Singapore first. The Navy wanted to strike the Philippines first, then the Netherlands East Indies, and Malaya last. A compromise approved near simultaneous attacks on the Philippines and Malaya, plus the release of two new carriers to support the southern operations and army demand. Following this agreement, naval authorities approved Admiral Yamamoto Isoroku's Pearl Harbor operation, a completely separate and compartmentalized planning effort of which army planners and most of their naval counterparts were unaware. On the 8th of November, the respective Chiefs of Staff briefed Emperor Hirohito for the first time about the attack on Pearl Harbor, and they told him that they expected to sink two or three battleships or carriers at anchor. One week later, Hirohito was shown the full war plan in all its details. The Emperor, as requested by the Navy, approved the Pearl Harbor operation on 19 November. Japan, then, would go to war against the West. To conclude, I was going to pontificate about the failure of Japan's interwar military security and diplomatic efforts. There was no strategic military consensus, and the Washington Treaty was the only pact that had any positive benefits for Japan. But thinking about it, were Tokyo's policies any more disjointed than the other great powers? The pre-war old order had collapsed, ushering in a tumultuous interwar period characterized by dramatic 
and continual global shifts in national security policies, international relations, military affairs, ideologies, and weapons development. <coughs> Excuse me. Consider Britain's 10-year rule, its haphazard approach to the construction of Fortress Singapore, the supposed linchpin of London's military strategy in Asia, and appeasement diplomacy. Did American isolationism, anti-Japanese racism, and economic protectionism promote international stability? The Soviet Union's expedient neutralism opened the gates for war in Europe, and Nazi Germany, the destabilizing continental power since the mid-1930s, took full advantage. In this larger context, Japan's interwar diplomatic and military strategies were perhaps about all that could be expected. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I'm going to grab the privilege of asking first question. What your paper shows, the underlying theme is this constant tug of war between the army on the one side pushing its particular strategy, in this case directed towards Russia, Soviet Union, then on the other side the Japanese Navy with its particular strategy aimed towards the United States. And that the, that, that tug of war and the fact that there never was a kind of point of resolution there becomes sort of a major drag on Japan's ability to basically come up with a coherent strategy in both in the start of the World War II, but then also in the conduct of it as well. And what strikes me is, is that we have a reflection here in some ways of the paper we began with, with, with Sally Payne's paper, in which the debate between is Japan a maritime power or is it a continental empire nation, um, that what we see is this, this, this debate that was, that was underway by the, at the even at the turn of the century really is never resolved and continues on down all the way down to developing the strategy on the two, two main branches of the Japanese military uh, and on through to the war as well. But now this prompts a question on my part. You had said that in, at the centerpiece of the Japanese Navy's strategy was a decisive engagement, surface engagement with the U.S. fleet in which the U.S. fleet would be decisively defeated and Japan would, in a sense, now be able to protect its home islands and the U.S. would cease to be a threat, at least in the short term. Now, the, the way in which the Japanese Navy now comes to, to short, their shortcut to that is, is the innovative use of air power in the case of the, the, case of the air, aircraft carriers. In effect, this is what takes place, let's say. And I'm curious to get your reaction about that. Was there likewise, did the Japanese army ever think about the creative use of air power as a shortcut to its strategic objectives in the way in which, for example, the Germans were to do in the development of blitzkrieg tactics? Were there, was there a Japanese Billy Mitchell? Was there someone thinking about air power as an as a <clears throat> as a tool for the Japanese Army's stra strategic goals uh, in the inter in the interwar years. Uh, perhaps I, I I agree with you on part in part about the Japanese Navy. They did expect to use uh, carriers and land-based naval aircraft to attrit the approaching U.S. fleet as it came mm. through the Marianas. But that was just simply for attrition. Battleships were going to fight the decisive sea engagement. And <clears throat> we think of Yamamoto and Pearl Harbor and aircraft carriers, but mainline Japanese admirals were all big gun advocates and they fully expected and wanted a, bit, a, a surface engagement. And, and that, I mean, the reason they built the super battleships, <clears throat> Musashi and Yamato, was because their guns were so large they could outrange anything U.S. Navy had. The U.S. Navy, in turn, could not build anything comparable because it couldn't get through the Panama Canal. 
So, I, I mean, this is in 37, they're doing these things. So huh. that, that big gun mentality was just ingrained. Uh, as for the Japanese army, uh, it tended to use air power initially for reconnaissance and later in China for interdiction. It, strategic bombing is almost a misnomer, and the Navy did a lot of that because they had the longer-range aircraft. Um, but the Japanese Army never thought of aircraft being used in close air support, as the Germans hmm. would do with a blitzkrieg, where they would <clears throat> uh, use precision bombing to open up enemy front lines. This was not how the Japanese would do it. What they would do is advance under cover of darkness, get close, a huge artillery barrage, and then up and at them. Hmm. That, and, and I'm not giving the impression of a suicidal attack. They, they had very refined tactics to maneuver and use firepower on the battlefield. They weren't stupid. And they measured their opponent, the Soviet Union, quite well. And they knew what they, um, you know, they, their exercises were against fortified positions because they would have to break through those to get the Vladivostok, and then they had uh, a breakout where they would be in more open territory. But the important thing to remember about the Japanese is they looked at World War One. They didn't look at the Western Front, where it was just a stalemate and a slugging match. They looked at the Eastern Front, which was much more fluid throughout those four years, with you know, front lines ch changing by hundreds of miles given offensives by either the Allies or the Entente powers. And that's where the Japanese took their lessons. So they were thinking of a much different type of warfare. Questions? We'll go here and then we'll circle around. So Dave Fitzgerald, retired Foreign Service. I'd like to go back to the question of the uh, Japan-UK alliance. You, you suggested that both sides seem to want to get out of it. Uh, but there's been a lot of talk in, in Japanese circles in the last 20 years about, you know, the whole idea of being in an alliance. And when Japan got out of an alliance, they, they ran into trouble. Um, was there really a sort of mutual consent on both sides? Or were, were, my, my learning in the 60s was that the British seemed to want to get out of it because of what the Japanese gained in the Pacific vis-a-vis -vis when they took over the German possessions and into China. So uh, yeah. I, I think that what had happened after the first decade of the alliance, say 1911 or 1912, the British started to take a closer look at the Japanese and say, do we really want to do this? And secondly, that alliance would have put Great Britain in a very awkward position vis-a-vis -vis the United States. They might actually have to end up fighting the United States if if Japan and the United States went to war. So that was one big reason for Great Britain not to want to do this. The second reason was the British were becoming more and more suspect about the Japanese uh, officers coming as students, particularly the um, naval engineering and the naval technicians who went to Greenwich. And they, they kind of didn't really want them there anymore. And uh, throughout the course of World War I, this just became more pronounced, that they saw what the Japanese had done in China, taking Tsingdao and occupying the Shandong Peninsula, 21 demands. Uh, and the Japanese felt the same way. Why have an, an ally that you can't rely on against your major opponent? And if we can't get it from the British, we'll go to Germany, which is what they did. So, you know, you hear the Navy, oh, they're very cosmopolitan, trained in England. Yeah, up until 1918 or 1920. And then they're all going to Germany for technical training. So, hmm. uh, you know, it just declined over those 10 years. And that's why, and, and of course, the British, after World War I, were in such terrible economic straits that they conceded naval supremacy to the United States. And the and Japanese were not ready to do that on, on a regional basis. So. Professor Sheng has a question, then we'll go here. Okay. Uh, uh, Dr. Jie outlined uh, Japanese uh, strategy and its change uh, uh, during the Pacific War. But sometimes I doubt uh, the real battles fought out was 
actually out of anyone's control. Lots of accidental factors coming in, uh, are like Guadalcanal. Nobody really thought about it would be the focal point for one year. No, you're, you're absolutely right. But also, the Japanese army never thought they'd go to war against the United States on Guadalcanal throughout yeah. the 1920s, 30s, and even in, they just didn't expect this. American commanders never knew the existence of Guadalcanal until accidentally they found a, 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 a strip, airstrip was almost uh, uh, completed by the Japanese, and that actually become the first, the start of American island hopping. So, uh, uh, no, I mean, I mean, you know, no plan yeah. survives the first contact. Yeah. It, it, it's just an axiom. I, you can have all the best laid plans, but chance always plays a role. And, I mean, you talk about Guadalcanal. When the Japanese were told to reinforce Guadalcanal, they were scrambling around on their hands and knees trying to let these maps of the Pacific around. Where the hell is it? They just didn't know. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, of, of course. You I mean if you look at all the plans, we're gonna, you know, I mean, even up to the last in 1940-41, the Japanese Navy, and it's, it was a serious plan to go to the mandates and fight the battle there. Well, you know, then you got Yamamoto doing this completely restricted planning, which just <laughs> so all of all of your well-laid plans. Well, we'll put those away and go with this. Uh, yeah, of course, I agree with you. Hi, my name is Barbara Dello, and I hope you don't mind if it's a little bit of a personal question. My dad was in the Pacific in World War II on a troop transport to Clearfield, and he still gets nightmares about it. And uh, he was of German descent, and I wondered what type of dynamic there was for German and Japanese Americans uh, at the war. Is there any? type of dynamic that went on that would still cause him to get nightmares. Do, do, do you mean for German Americans? Yeah, he, 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 he was an yeah. okay, American not, soldier. Okay, yeah. uh, yeah, say, uh, Navy man. Yeah, I, the, I suppose just the experience of war was just so terrifying and I mean it's not it's never going to go away. I mean, he lived through this as a young man, and I, I don't know what happened, but I assume some traumatic event in, you know, his mo in, in his most formative years. You know, it's like, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to talk about myself, but no, 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 it's not, it's not at all. I, it's just a very, it, it's just a very difficult question to answer because it's so personal in the sense that, Veterans have different reactions, and I know some of my friends from Vietnam have much different reactions than I do, and they would regard it as. I I it, I mean it just it's almost it's so personal it's almost idiosyncratic. How does how, how do you rationalize chaos and disaster? I, I'm going to take that question and just reshape it a little bit. Uh, I think it's fair to venture that the uh, alliance that was struck between Japan and Nazi Germany was a very peculiar one. It was one that did not spring from any kind of, should we say, ideological sort of affinity, as the case with Germany and Italy. Uh, it didn't certainly didn't spring from any kind of sort of nationalist. Uh, affinity between, you know, the Japanese and, and Aryan Germans. Uh, it seems in many ways to have been an alliance of convenience in the hopes that, as you were saying in the, on one hand, that this might be a way to deter the U.S. from getting involved in a conflict with Japan, but that also in the case of the Germans, there was an expectation that if a war did break out in the Far East, that Germany would be able to take full advantage of that. Uh, and likewise, too, that if a war broke out in in in, in between Russia and uh, Germany, that Japan would be able to take advantage of that. But in other words, you didn't have them double teaming the Soviet Union, each waiting for the other to to provoke a conflict for which they would be able to seize advantage. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. 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 
Yes, I, I think so. Here, and then we'll go to the back. Uh, Dave Rabinowitz, uh, I was wondering, this apparent military fixation of the Japanese government, was that an outgrowth of the Meiji uh, Restoration? Was it a throwback to shogunate, or was it something totally different? I, well, I, I, I don't think there was a necessarily a fixation by the Japanese government since the Meiji era with the military. Um, I, I mean, my paper was very narrow and restricted. It, it looked at the military services and a bit at diplomacy. But if you look at the overall picture of Japan's changing economy, its changing demographics, its changing political institutions, uh, and the institutions, as Professor Shoji pointed out, that were never made, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a larger picture. And I, I know it, I, you see the military coming into prominence. <sighs> In the mid '30s, and once they're in China, then you know they're riding the they're riding the train. But uh, actually, the you know if you look at Japan's wars, yeah, they they the army always comes out a little bit stronger, but not much. They they demobilize most of the people, and uh, they I, I don't I don't see the army as that dominant until. Later. Uh, I'm, later I'm, huh? I'm sorry. But I didn't answer, but. The question is there, and then we'll come back here. Uh, yes, Joel Hedker. Were the ideas of Alfred Thayer Mahan, were they obsolete by 1940 in terms of uh, battle wagons versus, say, aircraft carriers? Because his books were the influence of sea power upon history. Oh, I'm sorry. Alfred Thayer Mahan. Yeah, right, of course. Very heavily read by the Japanese. Yeah. Was that considered obsolete by 1940, or no? No, I don't think so at all. I think if you look at uh, look at all of the all the major combatants in World War II, with the exception of the Soviet Union, all of them, when they conceived of uh, naval power, thought about it in terms of big gun battleships. Even the Germans, after all, they built the Bismarck and the Tirpitz, after all, in order to achieve that. It's just that in the case of the Germans, unlike the Japanese. There, one service does emerge dominant. You know, one is the supported service, and the other is supporting. The supported is the army, the the, the Wehrmacht, uh, whereas the Kriegsmarine ends up being playing a very much more minor, at least on the surface. Of course, in terms of in terms of submarine warfare, it so it it tried to present itself as being the as being the possibly decisive arm in that process. But look, the United States continues its building of battleships. Britain, and so on. Uh, I, from my from my view on to sort of the evolution of naval warfare and what takes place, the realization of the decisive character of of carriers and of air power in naval engagements comes very late, and is not even sort of widely accepted until towards towards the end of the war when suddenly it becomes apparent you can really do amazing things with a carrier task force that uh, that even the most powerful surface surface fleet uh, can't. And then here. Thank you. I'd like to ask uh, a little bit more about the, uh, the way in which the neutrality agreement between Japan and the Soviet Union worked. Because uh, many thought uh, that certainly uh, at some stage uh, before the end of the, um, the German advances in, into the Soviet Union, that the Soviet Union might not survive. And um, uh, this had an effect within China, and I'm sure it must have had an effect within Japan. Uh, would it mean that the army would not have been tempted to think again about having given up the northern strategy and also um, wouldn't uh, the and then when, when the Soviet Union began to recover and began to give arms to both sides in China wouldn't again wouldn't Japan uh, have sought to try and stop that um, I'm not a, I'm asking out of ignorance no, 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 no. 
I, the answer to your second question, I think, I mean, it's hypothetical, but the answer is yes. But there was only so much. The, the, I'm sorry. The, to the second question, if, if the Soviet Union started giving arms uh, again to China, they, they stopped after the Nazi invasion because of their own need. Um, would the Japanese have tried to prevent it? Yes, but I don't think by force, more by diplomacy or by putting on pressure. To your first question, even with the conquest of the Pacific and Southeast Asia from, from where? From the the Gilbert Islands through the Netherlands, East Indies, into uh, New Guinea, uh, and of course, the Malaya and Burma, and they're on the borders of India. Even after all of that, the general staff was looking to turn the force around so they could invade the Soviet Union in April or May of 1942. So they weren't too big. You know, neutrality packs were nice, but th that was their. Uh, that that was one of the plans that they would just bring these guys back, and then they'd have at it. But they counted very heavily on the so on the Germans uh, doing two things: defeating the British, which didn't happen, and defeating the Soviets, and which I suppose is a lesson that you count on yourself and. One more, and then be ready to go. Zhukov smashing the Japanese in you know, Mongolia, that they still thought they could take on the Soviet Union when they didn't see you know, the, the, the Soviet divisions going, as many of them as they wanted to, going east, or I'm sorry, going west for, the, for Moscow. No, if the what they did after Nomonhan was try to retool the force, and uh, and then uh, if you read the lessons learned that they derived, it was mainly to blame the commander and blame the troops. You know, in other words, the plan was great. You guys didn't execute it very well, uh, but everything depended on the size of the Soviet withdrawals, and then it Japan. It, you know, I mean, that window of late 1941, early 1942 was, as suggested, bad luck for the Japanese, because everything came together then. If they didn't move in Southeast Asia in December, they couldn't move again until early 1942, by which time it would have been apparent the Soviets weren't going to be defeated. If they went into the Soviet Union, they had to make all of their decisions and launch their offensive by, I think, August 20th, because, you know, we're not talking about a linear advance all the way to Moscow or Leningrad. They wanted to take Vladivostok, maybe Blagovashinsk, but they knew us about a Siberian winter. They'd been there, and all they wanted, their plan was to go in there and conclude a campaign and bring the troops back to Manchuria and barracks by. October 30th, I think, before the heavy weather. So again, you know, it's just a, a matter of timing. Uh, that, that block of timing in many ways betrayed strategies and all, all plans. I should add, too, that it wasn't just the Japanese who anticipated a war between Japan and the Soviet Union. In the 1930s, look at all of the experts on foreign policy and defense policy, Americans, Germans, British, the one war that was sort of of which there would be it was a metaphysical certainty was a war between Japan and the Soviet Union and of course that's the one war that didn't happen <laughs> thank you very much Edward Drake <laughs>